You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I just want to let everyone know that my masterclass is now available on my website. So I've been getting inquiries already for that masterclass. The dates, the amounts, everything are on the website. Uh, if you go to the menu bar, you search down masterclass, I'll put something on the homepage when I get a chance. But please go take a look. This is going to be a very, I think, beyond rewarding event for folks. I was fortunate enough to get some information from others that have done this. And I can tell you, bar none, this is going to be way more advanced than anything you've probably had a chance to attend. Um, other classes that have been out there, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of designing hunting property. My own hunting property will go to you know, the stages of enhancing soil. I'll teach you new ways to make your plants more disease resistant, last longer, be more fruitful, advantage your deer, be more nutrient dense. That's just one part of the, the course. Um, we're going to show, show you how to cut timber, put in bedding areas. Basically, you'll know how to do my job. And my goal from this is to give folks, essentially this is giving back. Instead of doing the one-on-one, I wanted to have group opportunities because I learned in those environments. There's a lot that I, I take away from the clientele. People are quite experienced and have a lot of different perspectives. And it's good to get some ideology across from different members of communities that maybe have gone and taken a course from Don Higgins or Tony the Pratt. Um, I think I have a much different take than those guys. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's going to be far, far more beneficial to, to some of you. The, the level of detail uh, I think will be really, really, really important for your, your growth and development as kind of a land steward. And I think it's important for us to kind of take the next steps in thinking about our properties to bring it to the next level. The other thing I want to say, and something that's come up recently, uh, I've gotten some calls from uh, clients for next year, and um, obviously everyone's exciting. They don't like to wait. And I'm sorry that you have to wait to be a client, but it takes time. Um, I have a very pragmatic approach. I do things very systematically with my clients. It's first come, first serve. But I will say this. It's always worth the wait, and I always give you homework to do. And by the time I get there, you'll be more educated so we can have a more intelligent conversation. I think that's very important you know, to kind of bringing out the best in the consulting experience. The other piece is I deal with really difficult properties, low deer densities, and I've done a lot of properties with high deer densities. There's a different shape, way, and form to handle each one of those. So if you have a very poor performing property, I'm able to accomplish a lot of changes for you. If you have a high-performing property, which a lot of these consultants get these high-performing properties and their tweaks and changes, I'm dealing with properties that may have not even ever shot a buck off their property. So there's a big plethora of clients. So recognize there's a diversity in my clientele. And so that might be an example of why I don't have clients with you know 160, 180-inch deer on the wall because my clients aren't looking for the same thing that a lot of other folks are. And, and that's okay. Um, it's a lot easier for me having the clients that already have those deer in that four and five year old age class. I mean, that, that's easy. That's a different game. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, I just mean that that's reality. I can, I can forecast and I can tell you how to kill those deer. Um, some of these unpredictable areas that have low numbers are, are much different to kind of manage and maintain. And those of you that have kind of worked with me, uh, recognize kind of what I'm saying. Just an important point and topic gives you some concepts and uh, thoughts from from my perspective. All right, so I'm going to go solo. This is my technical conversation, and uh, I'm just going to talk about wind and weather. And it's pretty simple, but uh, I'm going to make it a little more complex than just, just wind and weather. So I put a lot of time into focusing on weather conditions. 
I live in a, I'll say a depressed area when it comes to weather. We have more gray days than, than sunny days. And you can go and look at you know, your cloud cover over time and figure out if you, you know, meet the criteria. But I can tell you, you know, we have a high percentage of days in my particular area in, in New York or the center part of New York uh, where we do not have sunshine. So I put a huge emphasis because of my microclimate on days that weather is good. And so do the animals. So there's a direct correlation to movement, movement cycles, and weather conditions. Don't focus on what anybody else says. Don't even focus on the science piece of this. The reality of it is animals like good weather. So do humans. Uh, I don't mean to humanize this, but it's very simplistic in that sense. If you have very consistent, regular weather, you're going to have very consistent, regular movement. I tend to have very inconsistent movement or consistent conditions because of the weather conditions that I'm constantly dealing with. It's ebbing and flowing in a lot of different directions. Uh, the temperature fluctuations that a lot of you experience across the U.S., that is a big indicator of change. And change is meaningful when it comes to movement. Movement cycles of animals is, is uh, something that can be you know, evaluated from telemetry or GPS studies, etc. But I can tell you, we're talking about small movements and small movements are big deals when it comes to making a decision or being able to kill an animal. The other piece of this is wind. We think about wind so much, particularly in a bow hunting scenario, because you have to be so close to the animal. Wind requires you to be very conscientious of you know, what you're doing and how you approach your environment. We've talked about intrusion on the podcast, but when it comes to hunting, recognize that your compounds off your clothing, your boots, your face, everything disperses. And as the wind travels and is impacted by friction or vegetation, the concentration of that will disperse in different directions. And the volume of that concentration could affect you five, six, seven, a thousand yards out from an animal that you're going to after. So to get within 20 yards of an animal, you have to be very conscious of that. So the maintenance and management beyond just understanding the wind is really critical. So wind is not easy to understand. I don't, I'm going to try to dumb it down because I think being technical means being smart about the things that you can fully understand. And I'm going to give you an example today. So I design properties around the wind. And it's uh, it's something that I don't think a lot of people talk about. And why it is, is it's hard to understand a lot what wind does when it deals with friction. So friction meaning vegetation. And so as wind travels you know, into a structure, it meets a structure and it slows or it bounces. Or if there's a lot of structure, right, it's, it's a dense canopy, right? There's a lot of leaf material. Uh, or there's a variation in understory versus overstory. It's going to affect those areas in different ways and shapes. So knowing how to cut timber to benefit your deer or to benefit your hunting is a big deal. So my example today is I carved out a food plot. And I shaped the food plot in a way where the wind is very, once it comes off this hillside, it becomes very directional. Now, when you're thinking about foliage, foliage has a tendency to deflect and in openings, a lot of times it'll sit in those openings. If those openings are small, it'll have a tendency to toilet bowl, circle, multiple axes. Wind typical direction is horizontal, but wind is obviously never traveling just horizontal. It's traveling in multiple dimensions. And those directions will spread out the, the scent molecules of you and your body, right? So the concentration is important, but the distribution is also important. So at what distance and you know, what concentration, et cetera. So you think about this cone-shaped distribution, which is a good way to look at it. Then it meets vegetation. But if the vegetation is re removed, it creates channels of movement. Sometimes channels of movement are the way to distribute your scent, your scent signal in a way where you can kind of manage it. So it's managing wind on the landscape and designing your property or designing your hunting locations around that. So today, I created this food plot and this food plot is shaped in a way where it kind of s curves and at the end of that s curve or small turn uh, it goes straight and i have an open area a direct open area at the end of that that point and that directs my wind down a a corridor essentially and once i wait for a high pressure day my wind 
will come. It'll hit my body. And we'll talk about barometric pressure in a little bit. But my heating molecules off my body, which eventually cool, but they rise at some point in time, escape. And they're elevated, depending on my, my location, usually. So picking the right days where barometric pressure is high is meaningful in relationship to wind and wind direction. All right, hopefully that makes sense to you because I think that's a critical component of understanding, you know, wind in relationship to hunting locations. Now, there's a little bit more to it, elevation, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So I want to get into the concept of thermals. Big misnomer, I've made mistakes and stated this wrong many, many, many times over, okay? Thermals essentially is the heating of the air. It's, a, it's the radiation of the sun on the surface that heats the air. At that point in time, when it starts to heat, it starts to move, right? So typically, cold air sinks, warm air rises. That's a basic rule. But when the sun radiates and hits that surface, that surface starts to build energy. And then energy kind of forms columns. And these columns can go straight up. If the wind pushes them, they can go you know, in direction of the wind. But the, the air mass themselves... Many times, depending on the heating cycle and the temperature at that point, and there's other factors of humidity that all play into this, but that heating cycle creates these essentially convection cells. And these convection cells essentially allow some of that heat to travel up a hillside. Very simple and basic. And sometimes when the wind meets that thermal, that heating convection cell, what it does is it pushes in a direction, creating this kind of mechanical turbulence. And basically think of like a surf wave. And simply, wind is going to start to spin and move in different ways. And so the cycling of air in that sequence is pretty simple, is that heating air expands and rises, less warm air fills behind it, fills the void. That's the whole con convection thought and cycle behind it. So if you take a landscape and you, you know, cut it clean, so there's no vegetation at all, topography is going to typically dictate uh, in, in, real, in relationship to slope and aspect. Sometimes the speed, the heating cycle matters, the ambient temperature matters, all that matters in how fast air will travel in a location. And so let's add vegetation into it. Now, vegetation is going to create warm and cool spots. So as air heats in these open areas or closed areas, and concept we introduced like clear cuts, so that'd be an open area, it's going to heat in those areas likely higher depending on the volume of vegetation in concert with the moisture or the water that's retained in that area. Certain soils retain more water. That's also a factor. If it's a drier soil, it's going to heat up quicker. These are all going to affect how thermal flow happens. Again, thermal is related to heating. In the evening, it's a completely different cycle. Now, to mention one other point, and I, I don't want to forget about this, is on the surface, if you have snow, snow negates any thermals. Thermals are generally not present on snow surfaces. So keep that in mind. So adding vegetation into it and canopy cover, etc., really changes the game. Because these leaflets, what are essentially solar panels, reflect and absorb sun. And so, depending on the status of that leaf material, uh, there's a thing called thermoconductivity, and some materials heat up faster than the others. One little example is, sometimes we wonder why the deer like to bed underneath uh, different types of species. In fact, I saw somebody on Facebook the other day trying to save a moose, and what did they do? They took hemlock branches, cut them, and put them underneath the animal. It created an air gap space uh, those, you know, that, that material is hollowed out in some capacity and its thermal conductivity is better than sticking a, you know, a branch of maple leaves underneath that particular animal. A lot of it has to do with the moisture content. So recognizing that some surfaces, right, canopy surfaces are going to heat at faster rates and the same thing with, you know, soils or low vegetation. A lot of it depends on the type of material that you're dealing with. Okay. So the heating of the surface, very, very important in developing this kind of movement or flow of kind of these convection cells. Now let's just get over to the other piece of this is the cooling effect, okay? Now topography affects both those cycles because 
when things heat or cool, they're going to hit structure. And around that structure, it's going to reposition or move things. Think about um, a stream. A stream is a good example where you have a, a stream flowing and we've got water coming down and it's hitting an object. And behind that object, it creates a void. And to the left or right of that rock, the water starts to churn around it. And eventually it eddies or curls, kind of like a wave. Kind of gives you an example. And, you know, behind that rock is essentially kind of the calm. And the waves or the intensity between those kind of creates this low pressure area. So a lot of times this high to low pressure sequence happens quite often. And so we'll talk a little bit more about barometric pressure um, and weather conditions and, and that stuff in just, just a second. But recognize that, you know, there's ways to look at, you know, wind on the landscape. And, you know, people use milkweed. It's very common. Uh, if you don't have milkweed, you know, buy it from somebody. Uh, it's all over my landscape. It's actually a problem for, for my particular area. I actually try to eradicate it because there's so much of it. And it does a great job of propagating. But what I do is use that milkweed. And I want milkweed that's really dry. So I'll take all the milkweed from this year. I'll put in a, you know, a, a, a tote and, and I'll let it dry out. And when I take it, I'll take, you know, a capsule of it and essentially take the seed off it. And then I'll have this kind of like cotton-like material. And I'll use that as kind of a little tool to kind of show me generally what the wind is doing. That is a point of reference only because your air molecules are so much lighter than that particular mass, it's not really a comparable. But it gives you an indicator of direction. And what you find is when it hits these surfaces, it slows, it speeds up, it moves in another direction. There's different heating and cooling air masses in the landscape. If you ever come out of the woods and you're you're walking you know, down a trail and you, you get into a cold spot and then you're in a warm spot. It's kind of interesting to think about how these masses sit in the landscape. And what you realize is the sun starts to set these, these masses, these high and low pressure systems are moving, you know, in different directions. And sometimes one's propelling the other, you know, sometimes one's replacing the other. So there's these cycles of movement that happen in landscape and topography has a lot to do with that. So the next piece of it is designing a property. We talked about air distribution, you know, uh, thinking about how air masses kind of sit and move. And that's not an easy thing to, to, to really recognize. It takes time to learn this. So take the time on your property to realize and go like walk down to a valley and, you know, throw some milkweed down and see how it, you know, moves across the landscape. You'll be amazed that, you know, there'll be a warm spot and a cool spot and this cool spot will sometimes deflect, you know, that milkweed. And, you know, maybe you have a water system, a water system, depending on, you know, its, it's a degree of, of temperature, you know, may kind of deflect air. Sometimes it, you know, pushes that warmer air away, depending on the time of day. Depends on the temperature. If it's, you know, a stagnant water pool, it'll be very constant. Essentially, Water has uh, pretty low thermal conductivity. It doesn't change drastically. It's higher than obviously air, uh, but it, it's very constant. And the consistency of it is really critical to understanding, you know, in some of those valley areas, you know, how, to, uh, how air moves. So I, I'll, I'll kind of end there. But I think those are kind of all really important topics. All right, I want to get to barometric pressure. And I think it's important that we think about barometric pressure in a, in a couple ways. So we, we typically use a barometer to measure, you know, this, this uh, pressure system. And pressure systems matter. So you go to like uh, tools like Zoom Earth or Weather Underground, and you look at these, you know, these weather maps. And I've got, you know, Zoom Earth up all the time. I'm looking at weather systems. You know, right now there's a high pressure area, you know, across the Midwest that's, you know, traveling towards a low pressure area, which is, you know, sitting over, you know, one of the areas that I'm currently in. And, um, you know, we kind of look at those masses in different ways and say, okay, what is the weather system going to be like, right? And it's this really interesting dynamic where the barometric pressure is going to kind of give you indicator of storm fronts and weather systems. So what you do is you take the barometric pressure and you overlay, you know, kind of these radar, you know, weather, rain events, etc. And you get to see the relationship there. 
And what you'll find is the intensity and they, they kind of measure them in uh, millibars. You'll see these uh, lines and ratings, et cetera. The intensity or distance between those is meaningful. I pay attention to weather. It's a big deal because it's not just jet stream uh, that pushes these weather systems. You know, it's, it's, um, which is a factor, and it certainly jet streams is, is a predominant factor. But, you know, let's say we have a hurricane coming up the coast right in October, and that's going to change atmospheric condition, which is going to create, you know, a push and pull. So we'll get a lot of east winds or southeast winds, uh, at least on the east coast, because of these other weather systems. So you got to look at big picture, a part of planning. Now, you can dumb it down and just look at the apps, and I'll just tell you, you know, the weather conditions. But the important thing is to look at wind speed and change of wind speed. Because those inconsistencies, those gusts and lulls will impact your hunting scenario. We talked about wind traveling, you know, or pushing your scent molecules over long distances. We need to think about that in the scheme of things. So the concentration of scent over distance is really, really critical. So the intensity of that wind is, is meaningful and how it disrupts or moves or gusts or lulls, etc. So the atmospheric pressure uh, is created really by these two different air masses, a high pressure and low pressure system. And the intensity of those are going to vary. Some are very, very high and some are very, very low. And so we have to pay attention, you know, kind of to that, you know, bits of information. So, you know, if you have a, uh, you know, a, a hurricane coming up the coast, you know, the, the measurement's going to be a very, very low barometric pressure, kind of indicating stormy weather. And so, you know, rising barometric pressure, you know, basically increases the air pressure, which essentially puts air pressure, like I said, you know, on the, the surface. And eventually that allows some of those scent molecules to heat up and rise. And so essentially you're cheating the wind in those conditions. So those are ideal days to hunt. The other piece of this I'm, I'm just going to mention, but plants. And this is definitely a sidebar conversation. I actually have had this already on this podcast, but I've talked about after a storm system comes in, a lot of times there's a lot of moisture in the ground and plants are trying to release that moisture. A lot of time it, it sits in the stem as well as the leaf and it becomes a great food source. You'll see the volume of consumption increase and the benefit because of the water content is huge for the animal. So deer will have a tendency to eat you know, more or be more active during those time periods to take advantage of you know, the water content in the plants. Very, you know, standard. This is a pretty well-known fact, um, something that isn't really talked about much, but things that I pay attention to. It's a combination of a lot of things that are meaningful. So when we think about, you know, these pressure systems and measurement, which is in inches of mercury, so we typically think, um, you know, what's the range of good versus bad, right? Very, very simplistically. But in general, you know, when, when air is dry and cool, it's usually pleasant, and the mercury readings are typically rising. Okay, so that would be like a 30.2, you know, at, at its peak. I think the past couple of days it's been, you know, close to that. Uh, so when it rises, it also means that you have kind of clear weather, which is really important. When the weather is kind of warm and wet, it means that the barometric pressure is starting to fall. And so when the air pressure falls, that indicates, you know, the storm's coming. So for some of us coming up here on a weekend, you might experience kind of low pressure system. That mean, doesn't mean you shouldn't hunt. It just means that there's a lot of instability. And instability is going to create uh, this awkwardness of, you know, can I get in an area? Can I hunt an area? And moisture content is extremely meaningful when it comes to deer. You know, their physiology is built around measurement. So they're typically being stimulated by the environment around them. And they are essentially their olfactory is you know, benefiting from moisture. So one of the little tricks to the trade is picking when to hunt. Intense rains can be uh, some of the best times to hunt because you can be bulletproof. High pressure days are also the, the right days to hunt in many instances because it's hard to be detected. Picking those in-between days are tough. So foggy days are, are really, really difficult to hunt because the volume of moisture. So it's important to think about that. And moisture typically binds with scent molecules, which will create this static environment where, you know, basically, depending if it doesn't have a high intensity of wind, your molecules, your scent molecules will attach to these, you know, water molecules, essentially, and they'll stay stagnant 
in a particular area, making it way easier for you to get nailed. And these deer will pick you off, you know, before you even a chance to draw your bow or, or shoot your gun or what have you. So we like steady days and a duration of steady days, specifically in conditions like I live where it's, you know, it's uh, weather depressed. So to my first point, pay attention to these things. If you live in a bad, ugly area like me, you can relate to this. And uh, not that I think my area is so bad, but, you know, the hunting is okay and the weather conditions aren't great. But, but I grew up here and I, I'm, I'm sticking around still. So the other measurements, um, anything below 30.2 and falling, that means, again, you know, the present conditions are changing and be ready because as it gets colder, you know, these moisture level conditions come in, you know, you're going to start to experience that high levels of humidity, et cetera, which make you more detectable of feel, et cetera. But pay attention to those two factors. It's really, really important. Air rising and cooling and sinking and you know all the things that happen with air is really important and i did mention earlier the topography thing and i want to make sure i I hit on this point just one more time is when we talk about uh and i've used this term improperly but i call them cold sinks not thermal sinks or you know thermal suck it's called cold sink so in the evening as the sun sets there's no heating condition that's present and very few instances does the weather stay static there's usually a cooling effect that comes into play and as those cooling effects occur your scent molecules are not benefiting from a lot of times not just the pressure system but the heating aspect of it because heating is meaningful if i've been saved a couple times when i'm hunting because all of a sudden the sun comes out and heats up an area and all of a sudden my scent molecules start to rise right up it creates this thermal column that doesn't happen in the evening. There's no such thing as thermals. Ther- Everyone who uses this term improperly, and somebody mentioned to me this recently, and I want to make sure this is an important point. Thermals are not occurring in the evening. They're not. Cold air sink is what's happening. And that's displacing, moving your molecules in a direction, usually of topography. And that's typically downhill. So creating low spots or areas for your set molecules to travel is really critical in your design or where you're in place, your tree stands, etc., and not allowing your scent molecules to go to locations that benefit the deer. I mean, you could design properties around this where you create multiple low spots and high spots, you know, to benefit yourself. And having, you know, incongruent ground can be a good thing when it comes to, you know, uh, air travel, etc. You know, rough friction creates this dis- disturbance. A lot of times we want to put food plots right on the top of flats, and there's a couple ways to affect these areas. I, I, some of the big names in the industry, I, I watch them do this, and it, it, it typically baffles me. I actually have food plots in different locations for different purposes, and I shape the food plots so you know thermals will travel or thermals will you know eventually benefit to one particular area, and my cold sink or my cold air uh, conditions will benefit me in another different condition. So it's really thinking around each one of these elements when you're kind of laying out a property. Kind of involved now we start to think about it. This is just not an easy equation of, okay, I'm looking at landscape. I'm going to put bedding over here. And it's really how you cut the timber. That affects the way the wind flows through those areas. You can make an area become unhuntable. Typically, I build bedding areas that are unhuntable. I want to create a landscape that is not huntable uh, because what I find is if we create these areas that are not destined for humans, we typically stay away because we realize that we can't actually get in those areas. I'm not saying in some instances I don't design bedding areas to hunt them, but generally I don't. I leave them for the deer, and I give them the deer the advantage, and I give them multiple opportunities to relocate themselves based on wind conditions so they remain in a bedding area. I do not want deer to move long distances. If they do, you're going to lose those deer. Big landowners, you may not have to pay attention to these specifics. This is the difference between areas that have high pressure hunting versus low pressure hunting. You've got to do every single thing correct. And if you don't, that deer is blown out of there. And the chances of you taking advantage, you know, of a particular deer. I've got a mature buck that I've been focused on here for the past three days. He has not moved off my property in three days. Has not moved at all. And it's amazing to me when you build the hunting property right that you can contain these deer for longer periods of time. 
Now, he may move off the next couple nights in a, for a few evenings, and but he'll be back. He knows where it's safe, and he knows that he can advantage himself because of the way the property's set up. I have given him an opportunity to remain on my property, unencumbered by my pressure, and impacted only by my neighbors, who my neighbors will benefit the way that they enter and exit their property. And not it's not just a sanctuary. He has every advantage from the ability to smell, to see, to hear. They're designed in a way where he becomes almost unhuntable. And I have to pick and choose when to go after that deer. That is the conundrum that I am dealing with. To get a deer to that age class, oh, it's such a difficult thing. And there's only one of him. There's only one five-year-old that I have on camera in multiple square miles at this point. One. And, and uh, it's impressive that he sticks to a property so well. So you can do it on your own property. I want it to be motivating to people. If I can do it, you can do it. I have 46 acres, and uh, I got off the topic of wind. But I want to talk a little bit about mountain areas really quick because I deal with very mountainous terrain. And mountains are tricky. Uh, generally, there'll be trends in mountains that you'll be able to see. So pay attention to this if you're a landowner. As wind travels over these, now you got to look at jet streams. So look at the macroclimate and then zoom into your local you know, wind conditions. There'll be pressure systems that are created in these hills and valleys that will deflect and move you know, kind of the weather systems at different locations. It'll be very consistent. You'll be surprised. In the summertime, it does this. In the wintertime, it does that. Uh, with, with the advent of climate shift, things change a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, you know, things are very consistent. The one thing that changes is when foliage changes, this kind of goes out the window. So foliage has a tendency to slow down things. But if you just took a look at, a, you know, bare topography, you know, as these pressure systems travel from high to low, you know, wind is going to increase uh, depending on the intensity. And so as it hits mountains and valleys, it creates channels. And, and local direction and deflection of wind happens in these areas. So look at the actual, you know, the, the magnitude of, you know, these structures as a comparison to kind of your lowland areas. What's the height and elevation? How sheer the steepness of them? Are they rock faced? Do they heat up in a certain way, you know, on a certain side? So you got to think about slope and aspect. And in that slope, you know, if it's a very intense slope, a lot of times, depending on the type of vegetation and the change in temperature and the volume of moisture, you may get way more intense thermals. And then you get Depending on the wind conditions, you'll get that mechanical direction or disturbance that breaks wind and thermal very difficult, particularly in the morning situations. Evenings, usually much easier. Again, depending on the weather conditions, the cooling effect, et cetera, and that cold drift, et cetera. You know, it kind of, it moves usually the air in certain directions, and usually it's downhill, and it's, you know, you've got to pick and choose kind of your angle of attack for deer in those conditions. All right, so uh, these mechanical effects will kind of vary. Uh, generally, you know, wind blowing across mountain ranges, sometimes they lift if there's gaps. Um, you can kind of play this out. I've done this with a fog machine. In fact, uh, a place that I took my kids recently, and I did a post on this on Instagram, you could see, you know, kind of how, you know, these air masses travel against, you know, the local topography, and you can see how things deflect, etc. But basically... Creating turbulence happens with really sharp edges and changes. So like in your own household, you go outside and say you got a barn and a house and you've got open spaces and you've got trees and lines. You're going to have a ton of different mechanical disturbances because of just the surface areas. You know, these structures are not porous like switchgrass or, you know, a, a standing set of pines or hardwood stand. You know, they're structured without any transparency. So... Without being porous, they're going to hit these structures and move off them. So that comes another point of thinking about creating very dense structures. So if you create a dense structure like a travel corridor, why deer travel up and down those is because not only is there benefit because mineral content uh, is usually higher in those areas along the edges, which is an interesting fun fact, is wind travels up and down those. And, you know, it creates a structure of movement. So Wind will travel down those corridors and, and go a singular direction. So the deer want their you know physical bodies up against those, not just for the cover aspect of it, but for the air and wind aspect of it. So it's interesting to think about that. And certainly when 
you know, wind goes from an opposing direction and perpendicular to that structure, it will eddy or turn and churn, you know, off these kind of harder surfaces. Yes, it will push through because it's porous, but in some instances it will slow down. And so it's thinking about how to design layers. Then we talked about walls of cover. The other purpose of walls of cover is to create these layering effects, which slow down wind, which help the deer thermoregulate, right? Cool, warm. And we want the deer to stay at the right temperature in order for them to kind of maintain their homeostasis state. We do not want them burning calories unnecessary, trying to stay warm, et cetera. So think about you know, using that structure to benefit your deer because there is a thermal regulation element of this for deer. Uh, it's built in their physiology and, and the same would, would apply to you and I. Uh, so let me see, where else do I wanna go with this? Oh, I wanna talk about fog real quick. I do not like hunting in a fog. Fog is probably one of the more dangerous things. I talked about the humidity levels earlier, and I talked about odor molecules attaching to water molecules and sitting in areas. So typically, we most deal with radiation fog. So what happens at night? Heating from the day is radiating back into space. It's essentially, it gets colder near the ground, and you know there's, there's usually you know a warm air mass above it, and essentially it creates this thermal inversion. And when the temperature reaches dew point, you know, that's, that's the saturation level. Condensation occurs at that point, and that creates this fog. Deer move a lot in fog, and they move because they're advantaged. They're disadvantaged visually, but they're advantaged, you know, with their nose. So depending on a deer's physical status, it will use that to its particular benefit. Avection fog is another thing you'll deal on coastlines. Uh, we have that in my area. We have lake effect fog. So any of those that deal with lake effect, you know, around the, the Great Lakes, et cetera, that's a, that's a big thing. And then in the mountain ranges, uh, this is a, there's another type of fog in that. And essentially, condensation in, in, in kind of these areas kind of keeps this heating and cooling concentrated. And, you know, same thing happens uh, for those living in valleys. And you'll see kind of these, you know, fog effect areas in uh, different elevations uh, and slopes. So I deal with that actually in my area because my elevation change is so drastic, you know, we go from zero to 700 feet in a short span. That may seem not like a lot for some of you out west, and I'm talking about west-west, Colorado, but in our areas, that's uh, quite a big deal. All right, I've got some notes, and I didn't pay attention to any of my notes today. I just started talking. Uh, let's see what other important things are important for us. I talked a little bit about fluid dynamics and understanding, you know, the difference between you know, um, well, gas and water, that's another thing. So we talked about high-pressure systems and low-pressure systems. Remember, air, which is a gas, it compresses. Uh, it, look, it, 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 it's different uh, because it has a typically, and, and water does this too in some capacity, but minimally, it's got these high-pressure and low-pressure systems. And they're so divergently, you know, in opposition of each other, you know, they don't, they don't deal with the exchange and the convection cycles the same way. Water is very basic. Water is just an example of, you know, kind of horizontally how, you know, material, you know, deals with friction and abutting friction or hitting friction. And so, you know, as the stream rises and falls, it's going to hit different obstacles. But horizontally, when it travels, you know, it's going to hit different surfaces and it's going to react. And so it's your ability to assess how it's going to react in a very dense forest or an uneven age man managed forest or when there's leaf foliage um, there's more understory trees depending on the density of the shrubbery so building advantages to your deer in those scenarios is huge huge secret to my success uh, huge, huge reason why i have to be specific because i cannot make mistakes on my landscape with the type of deer that i'm going after like i said earlier you know it's tough um, i wish that i had all my clients killing 160 class deer, 180 class deer, and I'm a little envious, so that's why I'm bringing that up. Uh, but certainly a, a difference between you know my clientele being in the Northeast. But I think people understand that. One thing I wanted to just randomly mention is I have seen more people that have been big buck killers going out enjoying themselves and shooting deer that they're just happy to have an opportunity with. Life is short. We spend a lot of our times focusing on sometimes the wrong things. And I've done this for a good percentage of my life, spending more time hunting than I should have been at home. And then I switched that in the later years or the more, more recent years. 
And whether that benefited me or not, it doesn't matter because your individual situation of how much time you can get away with and how much time you can is very meaningful to you personally, but it has to be meaningful to everybody around you. And if it's not, that creates a lot of conflict. And I, I just want to note that particular point because I hear that quite a bit from people that I visit and clients that I have. Let's see, uh, other things. We talked about thermals, mechanical disturbance. We talked about the different types of um, impact we have when we have different canopy levels and different vegetation types, and some have more friction than the other. The term stem density, which many of you will use, comes into play. And let's see, I talked about fog. I talked about using different apps. A couple apps that I use. I, I definitely look at Winrose apps because you can see trends. Trends are really important. Thinking about trends on your property. But again, remind yourself that you know, I said for the past three years, I've said we've had a lot of south winds, a lot of southwest winds. Well, five years before that, we, even in the early season, had a lot of north winds. It's cyclical, and, and you know, it's dependent on many factors. Some you cannot judge. So if you're thinking about wind in your setup, have as many setups as possible. Give yourself the latitude to do that or be mobile. And set those stands for those wind conditions, but understand that the day and time is a meaningful thing in that. If it's gust, lulling, you know, the different variations of wind and the directions and how it deals with the friction on the surface. And if you're cutting timber, how it's impacted by that and these channels that you're creating. I mean, that's all meaningful. You know, look, looking at, you know, NOAA weather, that's important. Uh, like I said, Zoom Earth is another tool that, that I use. Um, all good information. Windy is an app that I use. I look at pressure systems. Actually, I think... Uh, Deercast really does have great weather elements to it. Um, I use that every now and again. I think they have the free version of it, and uh, I certainly look at that every now and again. Thinking about your height and elevation is critical. Um, I actually thought about the height of my stand before I hung it because I was looking at the resident, you know, kind of topography and to see if there'd be any deflection off you know, the vegetation that was locally, depending on when I want to hunt this particular stand today, um, you know, what would happen in that condition? Would I be able to, you know, um, for example, if I had a lot of vegetation around me, my molecules would come off, they would hit that vegetation, and they could slow and potentially sink if there was a lull, you know, a lull in the wind. So I thought about the type of vegetation that was around that stand at that point in time and the height. So how would my wind deflect at this level, depending on the understory. So if there's a lot of vegetation at the same elevation of you, that's why I'm not a big advocate of hunting low, even, even for good shot angles, because it, it is a detriment to your success uh, in some capacity. It also gives you an opportunity to have, you know, more even surface level molecules sitting on a horizontal plane, giving you a lower probability of success because the deer will easily come in contact. And these deer that I'm hunting aren't dumb. Uh, they've been behaviorally taught to avoid stimuli like that. There isn't uh, many shots that you get. It's a one-and-done kind of deal for some of the deer. Typically, stay away from bottomlands. I usually hunt the ends, and depending on the slope, I may hunt one end rather than the other. That's a very big thing with bottomlands. Setting up bottomlands to hunt are definitely doable. I've done it. Uh, it depends on kind of the topography layout, etc., but you can set up bottomlands to hunt. They just have to be a time and place scenario. And you have to kind of do a lot of analyzing and a lot of control of movement for the deer so they don't come in contact you know, with you and your, your scent. Talked about relative humidity. Actually, when I'm planning out my hunt, relative humidity is a huge piece of the puzzle. You know, obviously humidity levels increase normally in the evenings, but a lot of times, you know, during the day I'm looking at the humidity levels and some instances i've found you know depending on the humidity levels that can be a factor in the way that deer move on the landscape and i did mention fog earlier dual point levels etc so that is a huge factor or a large factor in my decision uh, saturated days over 70 percent definitely days i stay away from okay just important to consider right around the 50 percent levels kind of usually what i'm looking for all right so let's see I want to talk a little bit about ozone, and I think ozone is something that we don't always focus on. I use a ozone machine. I've got a bunch of them. 
I've got ozone machines for my boots. I've got them for my clothing. I've got the bags. I've built my own ozone closets, essentially. And so ozone is an important molecule. Typically, it shows up when we have, you know, storms. And atmospheric winds kind of push this molecule, you know, towards, you know, the uh, the ground. And, and you'll be able to smell, you know, that molecule uh, in some capacity. And if you've ever run an ozone machine, the intensity of that O3 is typically a lot greater. And so sometimes when atoms split, eventually they create an O3 molecule. Uh, sometimes they create a separate nitrogen and oxygen molecule. But an O3 molecule is somewhat volatile, and it'll actually attach directly to a scent molecule. And what it does, it, it kind of oxidizes that particular molecule. And and degrades it. So you're, the concept of killing scent is not exactly correct, but it kind of reduces the volume of scent and replaces it with maybe even a more odorous molecule that will essentially complex or conflict with the molecule or your molecules that are coming off your body. So that's the simple way to look at this whole, you know, O3 or ozone scenario. So huge fan of ozone. There's a bunch of other concepts that I do in my clothing and boots that are separate, but definitely use ozone. I definitely recommend it. You know, I'm not going to recommend, you know, this brand versus that brand. Um, you can buy ozone machines a lot cheaper. You can build ozone rooms. I think some of you have probably seen that. I've given examples to my clients and they're right up and why I use it. Uh, other things I want you all to pay attention on is just, again, we talked about having you know, different devices to detect wind apps, what have you, using the milkweed, unscented puffers. You can use bubbles if you want. Um, you can do tests. Uh, some tests that I've seen is, and actually Rocky Burris and I talked about this, is seeing how airtight your box blinds are, setting off smoke bombs in your box blinds, looking at how smoke travels in and out of that box blind, using carbon filters in your box blinds. I think those are excellent. Knowing when to open and close your windows, uh, how to aerate a box blind using fans. Uh, some people have actually used fans, piping into tubes, sending them into ground, into barrels. I've seen all sorts of stuff. Filtering out, you know, the scent molecules with county carbon filters. I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, using trail cameras to detect wind. So, very interesting Tacticam. And I'm a Tacticam fan at this point because of the cost element of them. And my clients are using them. And I've now become a dealer for them because I want my clients using them because, because of the, the cost. And, um, you know, the reason I like those is now they have really kind of weather conditions in those pictures. They're indicating barometric pressure for your local area and the wind at that point in time. But wind is relative. Again, wind is not one directional. So I would suggest even including uh, they typically have wind ribbons and you can make your own, but attaching a wind ribbon to a tree in the distance so you can see kind of directionally. You know, a lot of times we face early season, I face a lot of my cell cameras north, and then I switch to south, uh, vice versa sometimes. It depends on the location. It depends if I'm using a solar panel. So a lot of it depends on kind of what I have for infrastructure, if I'm using a stake or I'm using a tree. But using something to indicate movement is really important. And a lot of times, you know, I, I focus on the days that are not too calm because I find that movement over time is a little more limited. So I'm looking at relative humidity, barometric pressure. I'm looking at, you know, larger picture weather conditions. What's the stability of the air at that point, gust and lulls. And there's a lot of factors that go into my decision to go hunt. So it becomes a science project for me beyond the deer biology and behavior. And I, I would caution people to, Take it to that level, but recognize there's a bit of insanity and analysis and paralysis that comes with it. And guttural, you have to go after a deer. So, for example, today, I designed that property or I designed this setup where a south wind you would think would be completely wrong to go after this deer. It was exactly the right way. Now, the deer was below me. He never came up to my location. So I was in the game, but weather-wise and conditionally, I was still in the game. Tomorrow, the barometric pressure is going to slow a little bit. It's going to, and it depends on the heating cycle. So I'm looking at temperature change in the morning conditions 
what my relative aspect is in that lo particular location, how long it's going to take for, you know, kind of the heating cycle to start to hit my area and how quickly my, you know, compounds are going to rise off my body. What's the timing of that? There is so much that goes into this piece of it that kind of makes, and this is just the weather piece of it. Designing a hunting property, I think, is just as complex when you start to get to the nuts and bolts. All right. Hopefully this gave you some insight into my mind and how I think. I didn't really have many notes here to go offer. I just kind of wanted to explain to you that it's important to take these topics and dial them in so you know what's going on. I appreciated everybody listening to this podcast. I hope that you, if you want to attend my class, get a hold of me soon. Uh, I do not anticipate the class being available. I'm limiting the size of the class it will be a game changer for you. If you want to take your hunting to the next level and your property to the next level and be successful, this will do it. And uh, I guarantee it with the paperwork and the concepts and the ideology. And I'm very basic. We dumb it down. We make it make sense. And this is much more involved than I think we need to make it. But for me and my area and low deer numbers and hard to hunt areas and a lot of hunting pressure, I need to do everything I can to advantage myself. And behaviorally, these deer are taught from a young age to survive. And a two-year-old is not a dumb deer in my area. If he wins you, he's gone. You get one shot at a deer even at that age class. So I'm conscious of that. And so it's important for my clients to recognize kind of my perspective. And that's why, you know, I'm able to do what I'm able to do with my business. All right. So I appreciate the time. I appreciate you listening. Thank you. Please continue to rate this podcast. I am not doing this for, for any advertising dollars. I do not get paid to do this. I do not want to get paid to do this at this point. I don't have any intention of that. I've kind of enjoyed this because it's allowed me to be free. I can speak my mind and I, I want to keep it that way. So your reviews and ratings are motivating to me. This will not ever be a paid prescription or uh, subscription type podcast. Uh, I, I see other people going that route. Um, I will give you more information than that over time. I will teach you some of the things that I'm going to be teaching in this class that I have on my own property. Um, and there's obviously, you know, um, a lot of important things. You can We can baffle each other with baloney and ideology, but I'm a rubber meets the road kind of guy. And if it doesn't work, it's not on my property, it's not in my shop, and it's not being taught to my clients. And I don't deal with junk. I want high-quality stuff. All right. That's it for me. Good luck hunting season. I'm hopeful everyone is successful. And if you're not, keep grinding. You'll make it a successful one way or the other. Thanks for following Whitetail Landscapes. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.